0: American Capitalism, A History, with Lewis Hyman and Edward Baptist. Let's go back in time to 1936, when Franklin Roosevelt, after four years of trying to implement the New Deal, was running for re-election for the first time. Now, he had encountered a lot of criticism and opposition, in particular from businessmen, who felt that his reforms bordered on socialism. And they believed that many other Americans thought like them, that they resented the New Deal. And in fact, the primitive polling techniques of the time seemed to suggest that. A polling outfit sent letters to millions of Americans. They looked up all the addresses, the mailing addresses they could find. They sent uh, postcards out asking, who will you vote for? And they got hundreds of thousands of them back, and they predicted confidently that Alf Landon, the governor of Kansas, was going to win in a landslide. And of course, Landon was defeated. He was defeated uh, in one of the most stunning rebukes of a political philosophy ever, because Landon really represented this sort of laissez-faire, business-friendly kind of conservatism. And after Landon's defeat, to no small extent, that particular kind of pro-business, laissez-faire conservatism went underground. Many Americans who really felt strongly in their bones that that was the morally right way to organize capitalism felt that they would never actually get a fair hearing in the American populace, which had been, uh, if you will, um, nursed on the, uh, you know, the the sugary food of socialism that was being offered to them by Roosevelt. The American public had simply been bought off by the goodies uh, that the New Deal and later World War II prosperity were giving to them. Now, of course, we know that after World War II, many businessmen, in fact, recognized that the stability that Keynesian macroeconomics and planning offered to them was, from their perspective, a good thing. And so even though uh, the margins by which Democrats were winning declined, Uh, And sometimes they lost Congress, and of course, in the 1950s, uh, we saw the decade in which Eisenhower essentially dominated the presidency, a Republican. That kind of small business, uh, small um, government laissez-faire conservatism simply did not come back into popularity among the majority of Americans or among the majority uh, of the political leaders of the Republican Party. But it was still out there. In fact, that political philosophy, the people uh, who believe that political and economic philosophy had made, if you will, a kind of long march through the wilderness, kind of like Mao Zedong and the Chinese Communist Party made when they went into the wilderness in the 1920s. Uh, and They had to go through that long process of refining and reforming themselves, sharpening their message, before they could come back again with even greater power. And that's what they spent the 1940s, 50s, and the 1960s doing. The whole host of small organizations of the truly faithful, those who really believed in in that sort of Adam Smith kind of liberalism, what what we might call a neoliberalism, they organized themselves in these groups uh, in the 1950s. Most obviously or most well-known perhaps is the so-called Mont Pelerin Society, an international organization of free market conservatives, the most prominent of which was Frederick Hayek, Uh, the Austrian economist, who later became an inspiration to many other conservatives. But there were others because, despite the despair about uh, the possibility that the masses had simply been uh, bought off by the goodies of Keynesianism, uh, there were a few who who kept the neoliberal faith, Uh, Ayn Rand, the objectivist philosopher uh, and novelist, um, William F. Buckley, uh, the conservative magazine publisher and raconteur, um, and Milton Friedman, uh, the Economist, ultimately uh, the, the winner of a Nobel Prize and the guiding force behind the rise of the Chicago University of Chicago Department of History uh, to its position as the sort of center of conservative small government free market economics. Throughout the 1950s and early 1960s, these folks tried to gather converts, uh, tried to convince others uh, of their point of view. And we could say uh, that by 1964, they had made a bigger and bigger impact on the Republican Party. The nomination of Barry Goldwater, a self-professed libertarian, uh, as uh, the presidential candidate for 1964 might seem like a real high point, except for the fact that he, in fact, suffered the greatest defeat uh, perhaps ever in a presidential election. And yet, by the late 1970s, this philosophy had become incredibly successful. So we have to explain how philosophy that had been rejected for so long, uh, that ultimately nourished itself on the sense that the masses uh, rejected it, and that only proved its uh, sort of intellectual worth, how that kind of movement would become uh, so popular by the late 1970s and early 1980s. So another way to look at it is that in 1980, Ronald Reagan runs on essentially the same platform that Uh, Goldwater had run on in 1964, but instead of a stunning defeat, he wins a resounding victory and goes on to win again, almost as resoundingly as Johnson had in 1964 and 1984. How did this happen? Well, the answer to a large extent is stagflation, the disruption of all of the certainties, uh, the inability of those who uh, argued that a, a mixed economy, an economy where government and the free market both operated together, in which the government played a a major management role in that, the inability of the people who argued for those things to actually deliver results in the 1970s shifted a lot of folks' minds, uh, both uh, ordinary voters and people uh, at a higher level as well, politicians, policymakers, economists, and so on and so forth. Their minds were changed, and this is the definition of a paradigm shift. Now, for a paradigm to actually work, though, it has to actually offer answers uh, to the problems. It has to offer solutions. Uh, And of course, um, the um, free market neoconservatives had spent the last 40 or 50 years trying to come up with arguments for why their system was better than that which had prevailed at the end of the New Deal era. So let's look at what some of those arguments were. For more information, go to edX.org and look for American Capitalism, A History with Lewis Hyman and Edward Baptist. Or go to facebook.com slash American Capitalism MOOC. This podcast has been brought to you by Cornell X from Cornell University.